Let's join in prayer together, praying that God will open our hearts and minds to the understanding of the scripture today. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Open our ears, Lord, so we might hear the glory of the good news of the grace you offer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, we are beginning a new sermon series. Our focus for the next six weeks, as you see on the screen, is going to be on some of the themes of the Reformation and a way forward as we prayerfully anticipate a new Reformation through the Spirit of God. On Halloween, almost 500 years ago, an unknown German monk and professor of theology nailed a list of 95 statements to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. This began the movement that we now know as Protestantism because it was a protest against the Roman Catholic Church, which was, at that time, encouraging people to purchase their way into paradise. Thesis or statement number 62 on this list of statements nailed to the door was, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of glory and grace of God. This gospel of grace became one of the tenets of the Reformation. Sola gratia, grace alone. Grace, not merit. And it's this grace we're going to explore today. Grace that has always been a characteristic of our triune God. Grace that is evident throughout the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Grace in which God stoops toward us, coming down to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, coming down in the pillar of fire to the ancient Israelites, God revealing himself to Moses, to the prophets, and God becoming fully human through the person of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to look at that grace as it's communicated in Psalm 51. The Psalms, we must remember, are the prayer book of Christians, early Christians, and also the Jews before them. You've heard this read today in the NRSV translation, but I spent some time this week translating this poem myself. And so as I reference the psalm today, you'll hear some different words probably than what you might have in your own translation. And so the psalm begins. For the music director, a David psalm, when Nathan the prophet confronted him after he had gone into Bathsheba. People do some pretty horrible things in the Bible. Even people who seem good on the outside, in your children's Bible perhaps, people who write beautiful poetry, or lead an army to victory. People like David, whose name is at the beginning of this poem. And David's name here reminds us of a grave, disastrous sin. The introduction reminds us how a seemingly private and personal sin leads to destruction and can affect an entire community. People reading or singing Psalm 51 in the ancient world would know the story that stands behind it, and you might remember it somewhat, or it might be new to you, so let me catch you up on this story from 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the time kings go off to war, 
it says. King David didn't. He's staying at home, bored and napping on the roof of the palace and looking around, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. Sometimes people think, oh, no, she was bathing on the roof. Well, that was a normal place to bathe. She was doing nothing wrong. He's where he shouldn't be, and he decides he wants her. He wants her like one wants an object, and as king, he gets whatever he wants. So he orders her, and she is delivered just like Amazon. And in English, we sometimes call the relationship between David and Bathsheba an affair or adultery. But it wasn't mutual. It wasn't necessarily an affair, and it's never referred to that in, uh, in Hebrew. It's kind of more like Harvey Weinstein, an abuse of power of the strong and the privileged over the weaker. Because if a king tells you to do something, you do it. Because if you don't, you could be killed. And so Bathsheba gets pregnant, and ultimately, to cover his tracks, David orders the military in which her husband served to attack, and then for all of it to retreat except him, so he's alone on the front lines, and Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, is killed with no one to defend him. And this is the story the Psalm 51 reminds us of. It's the story it's referencing. David has coveted. He's stolen a wife that's not his, and he's murdered, and he also thinks he can get away with it. But God knows, and he sends a prophet to confront him. Now, this isn't David's first sin, and it's not his last. David has some pretty big sins. It's not really dressed this way in scripture, but he did have eight wives. He disobeys God later in life when he decides to declare a census over all the tribes rather than just two, and he disobeys God and demonstrates his distrust. But it's the story of, David, of Uriah and Bathsheba that is the sin lamented in this psalm. And this is the sin that followed David around, the sin that influenced David's son, Amnon, that it's okay to desire another person like an object and take her by force. It was ultimately this sin, I think, that was the root of David's son Absalom's rebellion against his father. It's this sin that looked back at David when he looked in the mirror. It's the sin that woke him up at night, but he couldn't run away from this sin because it's part of him. It's this sin that indicates the sin that was with him from the beginning, from the very start of his life. This poem is a lament. It's a confession for those times of very bad sin. This poem gets to the heart of who we all are. It gets to the part deep inside of us that realizes, I have deep capacity for sin. I could do some horrible things. Perhaps you've heard the quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn that says that the line between good and evil runs through the center of every human heart. Sin isn't something out there. It's something in here. Three weeks ago, Stephen Paddock killed 58 people in Las Vegas, and then he killed himself. And there's been a lot of dialogue about his motive. Why did he do it? What was he trying to prove? We always want to understand mass murder. We want to see a motive, even if we think it's wrong, so it's easier for us to swallow and understand. So it's easier for us to say, oh, they were seeking revenge. They had been bullied. Or, oh, they believe in a God who wants them to do this. Or, 
oh, David killed Uriah because he wanted to cover up his relationship with Bathsheba. But in this situation, there's really no oh. We're just left scratching our heads, mourning with those who mourn. And there's no motive. It's just sin and brokenness. Sin from within and, and without. And this is probably in a lesser extent. But this is the same kind of sin that overtakes us when we're bored or lonely or alone in a tall building looking down on others. And this is the sin that Stephen Paddock and David have in common. And the sin in the rest of us, it is not a different sin. And I propose that we think of sin as a virus that has corrupted us all, that perverts our God-given nature from true image bearers and vice regents of God's rule on earth. This is the sin virus that causes a person who suffered abuse to abuse themselves or others or to never flourish, to hate their life. And this virus, the sin, it ends in death. And the author of Psalm 51 knows this. He goes to God, filthy, with broken bones. This is metaphorical, right? And a voice that he says doesn't work. He goes to God to be repaired and to get clean. He knows he can't cleanse himself. This is not a poem that says, I'm detoxing myself. I'm going to change. I'm going to live my best life now. I'm going to be my best self. This is not a poem about self-help. This poem is about passivity in the presence of God because God is the one who does the action in this. And so the poet says, grace me, God, because of your faithful love, because of your great compassion womb, blot out my rebellion. Keep wringing out my iniquity and purify me from sin. And this washing, this wringing out, should make us think of hand washing something big and dirty, not a washing machine and Tide Pods. So you beat it, you stomp on it, you aggressively interact with it. This is not a Mr. Clean magic eraser. This is an Irish washerwoman on spring cleaning day in 1885 with a boiling cauldron, lye soap, a washboard, and rocks. This is a power washer. This is how God cleans us. Keep wringing out my iniquity and purify me from sin. For I know my rebellion and sin, they're always in my face. But I sinned only against you, especially you, and I did evil in your eyes. So you're right to judge me. You are justified to con condemn me. Our sin and the shame it brings, it follows us around, frontwards and backwards. And the psalmist writes that his sin is always in the front of his face, like dirty glasses he can't get clean. Paint-splattered glasses that change the entire way he views the world. This is sin. And though we may say correctly that David did sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, which is true, his primary sin, and he recognizes this, is against God because sin is rebellion from doing things God's way. David is well aware of the law. He's violated at least three of the Ten Commandments, and I'm sure he knows this. He's coveted, he's dishonored his marriages, and he's murdered. I would say he's also committed idolatry by becoming his own God, making his own rule of what is good and what is evil. But in this psalm, he's relinquishing that. David is no longer his own judge. God is. You're right to judge me. 
you are justified to condemn me. And it is God who is the judge, and it is God who is Judge David, and he's come up lacking, and David knows it. When Nathan confronts David about the sin, David says to him, you are the man. The song continues. Look, sin is my congenital disease starting at conception. Look, you delight in integrity in my being. You, God, you want me to possess wisdom. So purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Bleach me and I will be whiter than snow. This is not a psalm of excuse. David is not blaming his parents, but he is admitting his sin sickness and his need for God's care. And if we understand sin as a virus, we are all infected. And the only cure comes from God. And God wants us to be well. God wants us to be people of integrity, people of wisdom, people who look like the image bearers of God that we are created as. And, and then the poet references an ancient practice of ritual cleansing here when he says, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. So if someone in, in ancient Levitical law became ritually unclean by touching a corpse or a grave, a ceremonially clean person was to take a hyssop branch and dip it in ritually pure water and sprinkle it on the unclean person and their surroundings. And David is acknowledging that only God can do this. Only God is ceremonially clean. Only God is able to make him pure and fully clean. And so, after he has been cleansed by God, after he has gone through the cycle that the Irish washerwoman knows so well, he is, once he's repaired, then he's also reformed so that he can hear the good news, which is gladness and joy. Cause me to hear gladness and joy when the bones you crushed rejoice. David is asking for repair. We could even think of it repair in his inner ear. He is completely broken. And God is active. David asks God to hide from his sin, hide your face from my sin, as opposed to David hiding from God. David knows he can't hide from God, but perhaps God will not hold his sin against him. Perhaps God will show grace because it is God who can exterminate the sin. It is God who can create and renew, just as God is the creator of the whole world. So he can create a new heart in David. Cause me to hear gladness and joy when the bones you crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin. Exterminate my iniquities. Create in me a pure heart, God, and renew a steadfast spirit inside me. Do not cast me away from your face, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Return to me the joy of life. Uphold my nobility. And then, with a new heart, the psalmist can begin to serve God. Then I will teach rebels your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. And it is upon the change that God has made in him that the psalmist is able to represent God to others. He is able to guide others toward God. But it is only after God has responded to his cry for help, only after he has experienced the transformation that God gives to the heart. Rescue me from blood guilt, God, the God who delivers me, and I'll shout that joyfully. 
unseal my lips and my mouth will proclaim your hymns. And even here we see God as the active one. God is the one who's rescuing, rescue me from blood guilt, kind of means rescue me from murder, I think. God rescues, God delivers, and then only after his lips are opened by God is the psalmist able to sing. But even here, he doesn't sing his own song. He sings God's song. The psalmist wrote many psalms, but they're not his songs. They're God's, as inspired by the Spirit. And finally, certainly you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give you a whole burnt offering. The sacrifices God wrecks are breaking hearts and crushed spirits. God will not despise these. David knows that the most important thing in our relationship to God is our recognition that we need God. The sacrifice that God consumes, sometimes it might say accepts, but I use the word wreck because in the ancient understanding of sacrifice, God would consume what was being sacrificed and also destroy it at the same time. So the sacrifice God consumes is deep humility in our hearts, knowing that we can neither cleanse ourselves from sin nor recreate our broken humanity. And so this is Psalm 51, a psalm of confession, a psalm that teaches us how to bring our sinful selves before God so that he can grace us. Grace me, God. And God does grace us. We can attest to that. God even graces the story that's mentioned at the beginning of Psalm 51. And not just because God forgives David. It might not have been grace evident to everyone in this story. This is a very messy story. But David and Bathsheba's relationship had long-term effects. So long-term that in the Gospel of Matthew, in the first chapter, verse 6, the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, is mentioned. Why? Well, she's mentioned in this text, which is a genealogy, to demonstrate the grace of God through Adam to Jesus. Bathsheba and David's son Solomon was one of the great-grandfathers of Christ. And this is how God graces us with good out of sin and death. God did create a clean heart out of David. His name was Jesus. And so as we observe the Reformation in these upcoming weeks, we remember that we are not saved because we are good or because we can save ourselves. We are saved, and I mean saved in the, salvation, in the sense of salvation right now into the kingdom of God that Jesus went around preaching, Salvation is through the grace demonstrated by the work and person of Jesus Christ. We are saved by God's grace, and this is what the author of Psalm 51 realizes. We cannot cleanse ourselves from sin. We cannot create in ourselves new hearts. And this is the truth Jesus reveals to people when he tells them that their sin is forgiven. The Pharisees say, only God can forgive sin. Yes. Only God. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you show us your grace? Show us your grace in our experience of forgiveness, but also show us your grace through the pain, within the pain and suffering of the world. Show us how you transform horrible stories 
like the story of David, into the gospel. Only you can do this. Only you can create like this. Show us your grace. Amen.